thank you all for tuning in to episode two of the Energy Today podcast. There is a lot of exciting things going on around the country right now. So let's just go ahead and get into it. Uh, I wanted to first take a look at crude oil price fluctuations over the past week or so. Looking at WTI, which is West Texas Intermediate, which also is the U.S. benchmark for crude. The U.K., for example, utilizes the Brent crude benchmark. But the U.S. uses WTI. There's different ones utilized all over the world. So starting off last week, uh, the WTI, WTI was trading around $39 a barrel, then rose to around $42 a barrel midweek, and then ultimately settled at $40. The reason for this, um, well, there are a couple, but the biggest one was the Pfizer announcement of the 90% efficacy vaccine for the uh, for COVID. And this is huge for oil demand because a vaccine means that we can return to normal and consume more hydrocarbons like we used to uh, in a pre-COVID world. This is also very exciting news because it reflects a return to normal being somewhere in sight. And ultimately, by the end of the week, the crude market settled down as investors started to realize that the many complexities of bringing the entire world to a vaccine were quite large. Um these, uh, that, that development somewhat crimped the excitement around the new Pfizer vaccine. Um, so that'll be an interesting thing to watch. Also today, Moderna announced a vaccine with 94% efficacy rate, so 4% more than Pfizer's. Um, so we saw WTI tick up to $41 a barrel today. So energy markets, as well as the broad stock market, stock market in general, are reacting to vaccine news relatively well. So in the first segment of episode two, I wanted to take a look at what a Biden presidency means for the energy industry and the implications for that as someone entering the energy workforce in the relatively near future. So first off, Biden has already proclaimed that the energy transition will be a focal point of his presidency. And this is pretty important because I can't think of another president that has stated this, that it'll, that it'll be a central focus of his presidency. So he has proposed a $2 trillion overhaul of energy and transportation infrastructure. Um, how this will be paid for is yet to be seen. Um, I assume that the taxpayer will end up picking up the bill for this. Uh, and he's seeking to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050 across the economy. And this pretty much fits with what oil companies plan to do as well. So I, I guess you could say they're not too far off here. Now, Looking at the political landscape in the U.S., the Senate uh, is likely to remain in Republican hands, which will ultimately hold up a lot of what Biden wants to push through Congress uh, legislatively. Regardless of that, there is uh, a numerous executive orders that he could uh, sign into law that we will touch on later in this segment. So any future stimulus bill will unlikely result and any transformative energy policies into the U.S., considering that there will just be a deadlock um, with Mitch McConnell leading the Senate. So taking this into consideration, the consensus is that Biden and the Democratic Party will likely shift a bit more moderate on energy policies and not, hopefully will not uh, demonize this great industry and take a focus on, leading, uh, on developing sustainable uh, climate energy policies. So with this stated, um, this is likely going to lead to 
Biden mainly reinforcing Obama-era regulations, signing a couple himself, uh, as well as rolling back a number of Trump executive orders that uh, President Trump has imposed over the past four years. So Biden says that his first priority on office, day one, he's going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord that was left by President Trump in 2017. For those that really don't know what the Paris Climate Accord is, it's an agreement signed by 195 countries to keep um, global temperatures rising, uh, to keep them from rising above two degrees uh, of pre-industrial levels. And the ultimate goal of this is to really push that figure down to 1.5 degrees. And the when the U.S. left this agreement in 2017, it was kind of a shock to the world. First off, they were only, we are the only country to do so. And the United States being involved in this pact was a sticking point among many constituent uh, signatories. Uh, the U.S. officially left on November 4th, 2020, um, right around Election Day which is kind of ironic, um, but the way that things work with the UN, it takes a while for things to officially become, uh, you know, I guess, official with the UN. Um, so this will be an interesting news story to follow. I assume that he's going to follow through on this promise, considering that he can do this um, through the uh, through his uh, the office of the presidency. Now taking a look at Biden's plan for energy, he's repeatedly said that he will shut down the Keystone XL pipeline project. Um, and the Keystone XL pipeline project is a pipeline that crosses the U.S.-Canada border, and it brings oil sands from Canada to the Midwest. And oil sands are primarily what Canada, uh, Canada uh, produces in their uh, oil industry. So a couple of implications of this. First off, thousands of Americans do work on this project, and totally shutting this down will result in as you can guess, thousands of Americans losing their jobs, which is never a good thing to see. And it kind of brings into question, well, is is that a good thing? Well, I'll let you decide that. But um, in the interim, though, it'll cause pain not only to the United States oil industry, but particularly the Canadian oil industry and reduce free market activities occurring in our private sector. Uh, one stat is that the U.S. imports roughly half of its crude from Canada, and restricting our access to half of our crude imports is not only bad for oil business, but also the U.S. economy. Um, shutting down this pipeline won't totally cut off our uh, our purchases of Canadian oil, um, considering there's many other uh, ways to that that we can import uh, crude, uh, crude and get them uh, oil sand. Sorry and get them to our refineries on the Gulf Coast, as well as the Midwest. Oftentimes, people forget that oil makes our lives, that we lives that we live, possible, and hindering our propensity to consume hydrocarbons that really make our life possible doesn't make a lot of sense in my eyes. Um, and I'll let you decide whether or not that makes sense to you, but that'll be interesting to see. Um, how that goes. So Biden, what he is going to do, I imagine, is to withdraw the pipeline permits from the oil from the companies that operate this pipeline to cross the border with Canada, um, which would in which would in effect which would in effect shut down this pipeline. And Biden is doing this primarily to restrict the flow of crude um, into our energy sector. And with the goal of ultimately speeding up the tr energy transition. So 
this then begs the question of how much pain is too much is letting go of thousands of American jobs and causing harm to our domestic companies a good thing? Well, I would argue that it's not. And I say, let's make the, the, um, this great transition a bit more gradually and get the government out of the private sector of deciding when um, the economy is ready for change. I believe that the, uh, I subscribe to the free market ideals where I believe that once it makes economic sense to make this transition, we definitely will. So taking all, taking these things into account, it begins to you begin to ask the question of well, if this is the first steps, so well, what's next? So a couple of order executive orders that he could impose himself. Uh, the biggest one that I've seen is restoring California's authority to set automobile standards for fuel economy and emissions of their cars. Um, this was a pretty big news story a couple of years ago, kind of a sort of a federal government versus state government battle in which Trump said, no, you can't um, set your own fuel standards. That's that's the federal government's job. So that was interesting development. But with a Democrat in power uh, in the executive branch, I believe that he will delegate this authority to California, which then empowers other states who may be wanting to uh, set their own standards to promote cleaner air or whatever their ultimate goal is. Um, so if this happens, we'll likely see a wave of, of particularly left-leaning states um, go through with this. Additionally, he says that he will restrict the energy industry's access to lower-cost financing. I don't know exactly how he will do this, but I'm assuming there's some sort of executive order that he could impose that would cause this to happen. And Already, the energy industry has been struggling to attract capital after a decade of, of pumping quite a bit of oil with not a lot of uh, real dollar returns to show for it. Um, again, restricting this, how much pain is this going to cause? I'm not exactly sure. Um, I think that we need to let the energy industry operate independently. And if if investors and companies are wanting to invest in the in energy companies and energy uh, shale plays, for example, I think that they're wise enough to make that decision themselves. Um, also, in the most recent presidential debate, which was the last one, he said that he would stop giving federal subsidies to the oil industry and specifically not allow oil companies to produce on federal land. So that is another executive order that he could do. And all of these he could do on day one, um, which him saying that he will rejoin the Paris Climate Accord on day one of his uh, presidency means that these things will probably come pretty fast. Ultimately, though, if if speeding up the energy transition becomes a real sticking point for him, you know, it's not just a campaign, not just a campaign promise, uh, we'll likely see higher prices of gasoline, jet fuel, uh, crude in general, as well as liquefied natural gas or LNG. And the reason why we'll see higher prices of these is because all of these commodities are connected. They all come from drilling for oil um, and causing uh, the supply of that to shrink by all those previous list, previously listed uh, action items that Biden could do will will crimp the supply side of it. And as you know, economics 101 will increase the price of all of these things that really make our modern life possible. Regardless of all of this doom and gloom, sweeping changes remain quite unlikely considering that 
the Senate will remain in, in GOP hands. Um, and because of this, broad legislation is pretty unlikely to be passed unless, as I said earlier, things in the political sphere start to shift more moderate, particularly from the left side. Over the past 10 to 20 years, the U.S. oil industry has been able to better compete with the likes of OPEC and Russia, which are these major, massive uh, oil superpowers. We became a net exporter uh, of oil over that time, which was really huge, considering that most people um, outside of the industry considered the oil industry dead in, in the 90s. Um, so this was, this was a very exciting development. And honestly, I don't see the benefits of straining our oil industry, outweighing the costs of quickly retrofitting the U.S. oil industry to better fit a Biden presidency um, and his policies. Additionally, one thing that's often overlooked is that energy companies do a lot to take care of the environments that they operate in. They, they employ millions of people providing, um, providing uh, paychecks to them, which feed their families. And, and additionally, in these places that they operate in, they do a lot to contribute to other companies that operate in the same areas, such as hotels and restaurants and gas stations. Because whenever, whenever a oil company goes to drill, they bring all these people with them and all those people need to sleep somewhere. Then they're going to eat and they're going to get haircuts um, and they're going to get oil changes um, and, and all of those things. So energy companies, in my eyes, do more good than bad. And I think that they're often... Um, demonized by the media, in particular, most media outlets, I would say, um, causing sort of a stain uh, in a lot of people's eyes of the of the energy industry. Ultimately, though, investor activi activism over the past, say, five, six years with the rise of ESG, which is uh, economic, social and governance. And it's kind of just people wanting to invest in companies that do good is, is a plain way to say it. And that has been enough to encourage oil and gas companies to make changes. And oil and gas companies don't want to lose money. I think people oftentimes forget that. I think people assume that oil companies will pump at all costs no matter what and, and, and flood the market with supply. But that's simply not the case. Oil companies are not more pro-oil than they are pro-profit. And that they mean that as soon as and that I mean is that as soon as it becomes more makes more monetary sense to produce something instead of oil, I personally believe that they will. Um, really, although that day has yet to be seen. Hope you enjoyed this first segment. Uh, most of this information came from the Wall Street Journal and Market Watch, as well as some of my thoughts about it. So stick around and I'll see you in the second segment. And we're back for the second segment of this episode of the Energy Today podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Roos. And in this segment, we're going to take a look at the Pfizer vaccine announcement that happened last Monday and what this could mean for oil markets in general. So as I briefly touched on earlier, uh, WTI futures, West Texas Intermediate, the U.S. benchmark for crude, started off the week around $39 a barrel after the vaccine announcement rallied to around $43 a barrel, which is a pretty sizable jump um, pretty quickly within the day. Um and ultimately settled to around $40 a barrel by the end of last week. And this ultimately stemmed from Pfizer announcing a 90% 90, 90 um, efficacy rate on their vaccine. And it is important to note that this vaccine has yet to be approved by the FDA for widespread use. 
Um, and there still remains a host of logistical issues such as cooling for the uh, vaccine to get it from from manufacturing to the inpatient. So uh, definitely not necessarily something that's going to happen very fast. This will be a, a relatively long process. Recently, we saw fresh rounds of lockdowns in some parts of the country. And I think that this is going to be a trend that continues to happen in the future where, as they say, we're in a third wave now. Um, and some some um, states will likely impose stricter lockdowns in the future, which is not good for uh, oil consumption. Because if you know if we're locked down, we're not going to be driving to Austin or or, or whoever is taking flights these days, taking flights uh, or consuming any other sort of aspect of, of hydrocarbons. As well as the the EU has been pretty stringent on their lockdowns. I know that uh, the UK recently announced a month long lockdown. Um, and back to the, that was a bit of a side, but back to the uh, vaccine, even though the FDA does pledge to act quickly in this unprecedented time, the, the emergency use, use authorization that the FDA um, can utilize for this vaccine is still a rather slow process. And because of this, we likely won't see widespread use of this vaccine until Q2 or Q3, the second or third quarter of 2021, which is unfortunately quite a, a feels like a f- forever away, but I'm sure it'll be there before we know it. So the Pfizer uh, vaccine will uh, have around, uh, Pfizer will have around 50 million doses by the end of the year for people to receive. Um, however, each person receives two doses. So this only amounts to around 25 million vaccines. And for reference, the population of Texas is around 29 million. So quite small as far as quite small as in relative to, you know, the, the world population and much less the, uh, the population of Texas. Additionally, I think that because Pfizer sort of shot the vaccine gun and was the first to announce, I believe that we'll, in the next few weeks, like we just saw today with Moderna announcing a 94% efficacy rate, I think in the next few weeks, we'll start to see more and more, um, trial results, as well as uh, companies saying that they have a, a, a viable vaccine and are going to bring it to market. So looking into 2021, um, with Pfizer specifically, this is really only taking Pfizer into, into account. So I, I pray that the other companies will bring a vaccine to market soon so we can all kind of attack the, uh, the, the vaccine world, so to speak. Um, they announced that they will have around 1.3 billion doses available in 2021, which again, two doses per person results in only 650 million additional people able to receive the vaccine next year. Um, This is quite a step up from the 25 million uh, vaccine number, but still in proportion to us being able to go to Astros games or or college football games or anything or, you know, concerts and and theaters and that sort of thing. This isn't necessarily incredible news, but at least it provides some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. And again, that being said, um, a return to normal is still quite a ways away. I really don't foresee something like that happening until Q3, Q4 of 2021, hopefully not into 2022, um, which doesn't bode very well for crude markets. As, as I've stated previously throughout this episode, um, a return to normal is vital for crude markets as well as a, com- a company's ability to raise capital, invest in new projects, and hire people. And 
and um, and make their the environment in which they operate in better. So, taking a closer look at what this all this means for the price of oil, well, OPEC recently stated, and for those that do not know who OPEC is, it's this I'll call it the cart a cartel. Um, it's consisting primarily of Middle Eastern countries as, as well as Russia and Venezuela. Well, Russia is pseudo joined uh, in Venezuela and a, and a couple others uh, in Africa as well. And in a recent report, um, they said that the oil demand recovery will, quote, be severely hampered in sluggishness in transportation and industrial fuel demand is now assumed to last until mid 2021. And OPEC is a very respected body of producing these kinds of reports because they comprise of a great deal amount of the world's producing oil, uh, the oil uh, exporting countries in the world. So saying that sluggish, sluggishness in transportation and industrial fuel demand um, will be delayed pretty much until mid 2021 doesn't. Uh, is it doesn't doesn't get me very excited. Um, it's it's just the reality that we live in, and we're just gonna have to hold on for who knows how much longer. But hopefully, hopefully not too much longer. Additionally, the International Energy Agency, the IEA for short, uh, which is an international, um, as, as I said, uh, energy group agency, whatever you want to call it, very respected within the energy community. Um, in a recent report, they said that quote. It is far too early to know how and when vaccines will allow normal life to resume. For now, our forecasts do not anticipate a significant impact in the first half of 2021. They added that the poor outlook for demand and rising production in some countries suggests that current fundamentals are too weak to offer firm support to prices. So taking all this into account, I imagine in the future, or in the future, I mean the next three to six months, we'll, we'll have more vaccine announcements. Crude markets will rise, probably hitting a price level of maximum, but around forty-five dollars a barrel until there's broad, broad uh, consensus that most people will be vaccine pretty soon. I think once that happens, I think we'll see crude go to forty-seven, forty-eight dollars a barrel. And uh, an, an example of a company operating in this environment, ConocoPhillips, is it has a business model which Crude can um, crude has to uh, be around forty dollars a barrel to remain afloat, which that is a very uh, proactive sign on their part. But Russia, for example, I believe don't quote me on this, but I believe around eighty dollars a barrel is what they need um, in order to have a viable viable energy industry. So all this doom and gloom taking into account, I do personally believe that there will be a better day and a better a better and. It, and this is still a very exciting time to be entering into the energy industry because the fact of the matter is, is that the oil industry is a cyclical one. And we go through peaks and troughs and, and flat and more peaks and more troughs. But ultimately, we will see a rebound soon. And quite frankly, I believe that the U.S. as well as the world and, and the U.S. energy industries will come out the other side of this Um with more consolidated and disciplined oil companies uh, and disciplined, I mean, they won't rush to produce as fast as possible to, to um, demonstrate more capital discipline and, and maintain better balance sheets and, and pumping stats. So that's all I had for you today. I really hope that you enjoyed this podcast and thank you for tuning in. I recently started a Twitter account for this uh, podcast. It's the whole goal of that is to 
a goal of the Twitter account is to stay more up to date throughout the week instead of just hearing about it once a week. It's called Energy Today 3 on Twitter. So go go check us out. Um, I'm sure you'll find some, some great information there. And I hope everybody has a great week. Thank you.